Section 21 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Heirloom by T. Duthy Lyle. Volume 2, Chapter 7 Light Athwart the Gloom. Having thus by cursory retrospect seen how it was that the Vernwood murder case had come into the American private detective's hands, we will return to a relation of the course the affair was taking in the city of New York. From the night and morning on which that mysterious visitant presented himself at the American detective's office, and the little ferret man Paul Nugas had lost the scent through the elusive tactics of his quarry, for many days nothing to enlighten the sorely perplexed Vandermeulen, or to add so much as the shadow of a clue to his man. Nothing transpired. No single ray of light seemed to fall across the impenetrable gloom. But Colonel Vandermeulen knew the wisdom which lies in the core of the French proverb, which teaches that everything comes to him who knows how to wait. And so... If he could do naught else, a waiting game Colonel Vandermeulen resolved to play. However, Colonel Vandermeulen did not believe in an idle, listless waiting. The kind of waiter to whom he believed that everything would in due time come was the waiter who waited with his eyes wide open and all his faculties and intelligence actively on the alert. In fact, on to the passive proverb of France, the wise colonel tacked the active saw of England, which says, God helps those who help themselves. So while trusting to his luck, Colonel Vandermeulen did not for a moment forget to make use of his own brains. This is a useful lesson to learn. But the information that either Colonel Vandermeulen's luck or his brains brought him amounted to about nothing at all. Day after day, Paul Nugas was sent touting about in all the likely and unlikely corners of New York and Long Island City, in hopes that either by stratagem or inquiry, or by chance, he might again catch a sight of his man. But as the days passed by, it seemed as if he might as well have hunted in the streets of the Empire City for dropped greenbacks and gold. But at last, suddenly and unexpectedly, out of this profound mystery and darkness there came a bolt like a ray of light, as if from a rift in some dark, impenetrable cloud. That midnight race and confusion and terror and terror on which exaggerated occasions attract vast concourses of excited spectators in the English capital of London was occurring in the city of New York, but on a still grander and more magnificent scale. Yes, on a still more magnificent, still more appalling scale was occurring in the city of New York. Higher and higher, stronger and stronger, leapt and mounted the lurid flames, as if a devouring, apparently irrepressible conflagration seemed to wrap and fondle in their consuming folds an apparently doomed and devoted city. Across the dark vista of the rushing, rolling, surging waters of the East River, 
as viewed from the city of New York, the panorama of flame illuminating the darkness of the sky above, of the earth around, and dancing angrily on the rushing tide of the intervening sea. The panorama was one which, from the memories of those spectators who beheld it, the recollection of the spectacle was likely never to fade. Across the East River, from the east side of the long tongue of land known as Manhattan Island, now overbuilt into the dense and busy city of New York, beyond some one or two miles, as viewed from the more medium streets of New York, of surging waters, the opposite shore of Long Island has become likewise overbuilt, but overbuilt by the exigencies and ramifications of an industrial city, manufactories, railway depots, and the like, with the result that all along, down to the very water's edge, there has sprung up a fringe of wharves, piers, timber, and coal yards, crowded with vast stacks of lumber, piles of coal, stacks of casks of inflammable oils. And this mass had caught. Viewed at midnight when at its height, from the west or New York side of the East River, the conflagration formed a spectacle of grandeur and magnificence indeed. But it is our purpose to deal with spectacular effect and the setting of our drama only insofar as they may form the setting and compose the immediate surroundings of those characters whose interests and actions have become interwoven into the network of the story which we have to tell. Although he follows fashion and assumes often a family history, and sometimes, in the soaring ambitions of his soul, will purchase for so many hundreds or thousands of dollars from some accommodating title-monger, a pedigree and a coat of arms, the latter blazoned in all the tinctures of heraldic art, affecting to prove his descent from some line of nobility or even medieval kings. Yet for all this, the average American citizen the creation of the great wealth-producing country of his adoption is more commonly an essentially industrial being. If day by day he is making the great country of his adoption, if day by day he is opening its inexhaustible mines, hewing its boundless forests, covering its vast areas and prairies with an almost incomprehensible network of iron roads, Yet his great country, too, is all the while molding and making him, and producing often, although toning down as its civilization matures, a peculiar manner of man, shrewd, sensible, and practical withal, but who thinks much more of an active present and a grander future than he does of a defunct, an obsolete and worn-out and almost forgotten past, who boasts less frequently of his descent from a noble ancestry or medieval kings than he does of the number of millions of bushels of wheat which are exported, the number of millions of hogs that are annually slaughtered, the number of millions of gallons of oil that are annually raised, the numbers of manufactories, and the numbers of millions of dollars vested in public works and bank shares in his own state. But this is a digression. However, it is a digression bearing, though perhaps a little remotely, on the course of our tale. Thus, 
the long fringe of wharves, docks, and warehouses which come down to the water's edge on the shore of Long Island City are commonly filled and piled with merchandise of a most inflammable sort. But we will return to the adventures of some of the characters who comprise the more active entities of our tale. It is unnecessary to say what purpose led Colonel Vandermeulen and his little ferret man, Paul Nugas, to be prowling about the eastern streets of New York City at an unconscionable hour of the night, at an hour when both the human and brute creation commonly rest from toil, when silence broods upon the sleeping city, and when the great wheels and arms and interests of the mighty machine of commerce for a time are still. But so it happened that they were. From the eastern extremity of 34th Street, New York, which is terminated by the rapid current, as aforesaid, of the East River, or, putting it shortly in familiar American parlance, from the foot of East 34th Street, New York, there ply periodically to an opposite landing stage known as Hunter's Point, a line of those, to foreign eyes, strange vessels called ferries, which emanate radially on all sides and to all points outside the great island city. Among a crowd of sightseers anxious for excitement, which thronged the midnight trip of the vessel, stood the New York private detective, Colonel Vandermeulen, and Paul Nugas, his little gray-coated ferret man. In due course of some twenty minutes, in which from the ferry boat, as it forged its way through the tide of the East River, there appeared a view of superlative grandeur of the raging and momentarily increasing fire. The crowd of passengers landed at Hunter's Point, and of those the majority hurried off to the scene of activity and disaster. With these were Colonel Vandermeulen, while the little man Paul Nugas, half walking, half running, shambled and scrambled along, keeping as near as he could to his master's heels or his master's side. Why they were there, what good they could do, an outsider might have experienced some difficulty to define. But far apart as are the two characters, as the very antipodes or the very poles, Colonel Vandermeulen, as where extremes meet, like that facile, seedy creation of grandiose gentility Mr. Wilkins's macabre, was ever on the alert for something to his advantage to turn up. But whereas Colonel Vandermeulen was prompt to seize and turn every thread and every shred of his chances to account, Mr. Micawber, we are told, allowed the magnificent opportunities of his life to glide. So narrow and defined, my dear reader, is the boundary line between the sensible and the simple, between the powerful and the weak. When Vandermeulen and Paul Nugas arrived on the scene of the conflagrations, and though, as we've stated before, in an exaggerated degree, the devouring element was moment by moment gaining with leaps and bounds of fearful rapidity over the efforts of those who, with a frantic display of energy, were seeking to restrain to within the narrowest possible limits its devastating power. The scene of a fire to many, to most of us, is not new, but where civilization is but young, and where boundless forests produce building materials of inflammable woods ready for the hewer's hand, and where the frame houses of youthful civilization grow into streets upon which it can feed, 
The outbreak of a conflagration is a catastrophe indeed, a catastrophe of which often no man can foresee the end, a catastrophe far greater than when civilization has outgrown its early youth from an age of wood to an age of brick and stone. And this was what was taking place at Long Island City. Having originated, as commonly, no one knew where, down near the water's edge among the densely packed wharves. It spread upwards to the frame and wooden habitations of the adjacent streets. House after house caught, became wrapped, enfolded, surrounded by the consuming element of destruction and by the intensity of the heat. And beyond all the power of human agency to quell, the annihilating demon of flame seemed as if in his cruel revelry verily to dissolve, if we may use the word, each human dwelling into a mass of wreckage, of debris, and then, as the crash of timbers followed, that which once was a human habitation, a home, became converted into a void and smoking space. There was the constant arrival of engines upon the scene. There was the turmoil. There was the crashing of falling timbers. There was the rushing and shouting of excited men. And then suddenly, out of all this confusion, arose an incident which is affected by, or forms part of, our tale. The flames had enveloped in their devouring embrace a row of those frame or wood-built dwellings so common in American villages or the older towns, where wood is more easily obtainable than stone, on to which, from the wharves, they had leaped and caught, and one after another the devoted dwelling seemed like as though they were composed of dry matchwood, to be enfolded almost as if lovingly in the destructive tongues and folds of flame, and one by one, amid blinding showers of sparks and dense volumes of stifling smoke to come crashing to the ground. The cries of the frightened women and children who were barely escaping with life, some indeed not escaping at all. The shouts of firemen, the roar of the wind-caught flames, the falling noise of demolished tenements and buildings and timber with the eager excitement of the crowd, was a scene of overthrow, confusion, and disaster, impossible adequately to depict in words. In the midst of all this confusion, out upon the central balcony of a large frame house which stood some thirty to forty feet above the ground, in construction than its neighbors somewhat more pretentious and ornate, but no less inflammable, there appeared wrapped in only the merest covering of apparel a woman, terror-stricken, shrieking, gesticulating, praying in the midst of the surrounding ruin for the salvation of dearest life. The fire had already full possession of the lower apartments and floors of the inflammable structure, and thus through these all exit was hopelessly cut off. Firemen and escapes engaged upon other and distant rescues were nowhere near, and it seemed to the noisy and excited beholders whose sympathies were roused to the uttermost on the helpless creature's behalf, a matter of only moments, whether she could be saved or whether she must suffer the most painful of deaths. 
higher and higher could the flames be seen from without in the lower apartments to mount up, licking in, devouring their prey. Then suddenly there was a shout and a cheer. The cry rose. She was saved. She was saved. A ladder had been found and was placed against the balcony, and then with cat-like agility there pushed through the crowd and ran up round after round to the utter astonishment and wonder of our two acquaintances, Colonel Vandermeulen and his little ferret man Paul Nugas, who were spectators of the scene, no other than the New York detective's midnight visitor. None other, he believed, than either the ghost or the double or the counterpart, he knew not which, of the murdered Bertram Gonault. The little man Paul Nugas, who was as quick to make the recognition as his chief, jumped, gesticulated, and capered madly by his master's side in the wildness of his joy. Joy that the strange mystery, which for so many days and so many nights he had laboriously sought to phantom and unravel, seemed thus being revealed to them by this fortuitous and fortunate chance. For ill as is the wind which blows, terrible indeed, the little man thought, must be the fire that burns for nobody's good. But wild as was the little man's delight, and also, if less vehemently expressed, than that of his chief, it was a hope and satisfaction which was as transient and short-lived as it was wild. Scarcely had the colonel's strange visitor gained the summit. Scarcely were his arms stretched out to save the woman who stood in such imminent peril and such abject fear. Scarcely had he grasped her in his arms when, undermined as had been the stories of the large frame house beneath, burnt already merely to a charred frame and weighted by the pressure on it of the ladder of the rescuer, and simultaneously that of the two human beings, the whole fabric of the front gave way, crashing backwards in one stupendous crash, carrying with it the two hapless beings, apparently to certain death amid the wreckage and ruin of the devouring flames. A loud exclamation of horror in one long, deep wail arose from the throats of the eager and expectant crowd. With leaps and bounds, the flames again shot upwards and arose upon the pyre over what seemed inevitably the ashes of the dead. As the fabric of the frame house collapsed and fell crashing into the flames, a loud, wild, heart-rending shriek of fear, anguish, despair, was heard above the din of the disaster, and then all was still and where the house had stood the flames seemed to leap and revel over the demolition of, let us think not what, for the spectacle seemed to all who beheld it too sickening for contemplation and thought. End of section 21 Read by Paul Hampton